0: Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We need more songs about the fear of God. I love the resurgence we've seen in recent decades of theologically rich, God-centered songs for the church to sing, thereby helping us to marinate in and glory in him. At one time, it seemed like the balance had so tipped that Christians mostly sing songs about His eminence, his nearness to us. But more and more, the collective songbook of the church has recovered singing of his transcendence, that he is holy beyond us, creator while we are created, king while we are his subjects. Still, we need more songs about the fear of God because we need to rejoice in and marinate in the fear of the Lord. Here's one I think we should retrieve, Gadsby Hymnal number 254 titled The Fear of the Lord from 1844. As I read, can you glory in these truths this morning? Tell me your heart doesn't need more of this. The fear of the Lord our days will prolong, in trouble afford a confidence strong, will keep us from sinning, will prosper our ways, and is the beginning of wisdom and grace. The fear of the Lord preserves us from death, enforces his word, enlivens our faith. It regulates passions and helps us to quell the dread of damnation and terrors of hell. The fear of the Lord is soundness and health, a treasure well stored with heavenly wealth, a fence against evil by which we resist, world flesh and the devil and imitate Christ. Mm. Our text today calls us to consider God's holiness, to consider the seriousness of sin and to walk away with a greater fear of the Lord stirred up within us. It calls us to walk in a spirit-wrought grace, yes, but also in spirit-wrought fear that wars against contriving evil in our hearts and sets us apart as his people to proclaim his gospel. Let's begin reading in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word where you reveal to us what is true about you and what is true about us. God, may your spirit move on our hearts this morning, convicting us where we need to be convicted, comforting us where we need to be comforted. God, may you stir up in us a greater holy reverence, for you may you grip our mind and hearts attention and cause us to behold your glory this morning god i pray that you would speak through me help me to speak clearly God, guard me from error father i pray that you would make your word a swift word passing from the ear to the heart from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Uh, we have read this morning from verse thirty-one in order to call, recall to our minds the literary context for our passage today. Up until now, chapter four has dealt with an outside threat to the church. Today, we turn to a threat from within. Today's text follows right after Luke records that mighty prayer meeting that results in the church being filled with the Spirit, continuing to speak the Word of God boldly. From there, our text offers us two contrasting pictures. First, in four thirty-two 32-37, we see the Spirit's work in the church. Then, in 5, 1 through 10, we see Satan's work within the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. Finally, we see the Spirit win in 5, 11 through 14. So the passage intentionally holds up to us these two pictures like a counterfeit set next to the real thing. We are invited to circle all the differences that we see between the two images. Keeping in mind that the chapter divisions are not part of the original text, we see that this is an intentional contrast in a few ways. First, we see the repetition of the language laid at the apostles' feet. See, in verse 35, the church lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Verse 37, Barnabas lays the money at the apostles' feet. Then in 5.2, Ananias brought a a part of his proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a literary thread telling us that we need to hold these two stories together. Second, there's a repetition of great blank was upon them all. In first image, we see verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Then in the second image, we're told, verse 5, great fear came upon all. And then verse 11, great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard of these things. Again, it's a literary thread calling us to hold these two images up side by side and note the differences. Last, we see an explicit contrast of the characters. In the first image, we see the great selflessness of the church, epitomized by the example of Barnabas. Then in the second language, we see that contrasting word, but- Barnabas did this, but Ananias clearly the text is seeking to contrast these things. Let's look now to the first image. Now the verse 432. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There was a spirit-wrought unity among the full number of the church. They were of one heart and one soul. Many thousands of believers from various socioeconomic levels, some were landowners, some were not, from different backgrounds, from different personalities, but they were united together by the Spirit in their faith of the risen Christ. The vertical relationship with the Father had horizontal implications with the other believers. Oh, may the same be said of us today, that we are of one heart and soul. Church, we've had remarkable unity here over the past few years. That unity hasn't been because we've been uniform in our opinions. We have a diversity of thought on any number of issues that have caused very real rifts in other congregations. But through a pandemic, through a polarizing election, through broader cultural questions about justice, even through college football season, our church has maintained remarkable unity by focusing on what matters most, the gospel. Praise God for that. Let's not take that for granted and let us all plead with him that he would maintain that in the days ahead for his glory. Going further, though, to be of one heart and soul speaks to more than just the congregational level. It also has real implications on the one-to-one relational level. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and at this point, I just think I'm going to go to the grave saying this. If Jesus is Lord of your heart and mine, if the Spirit has regenerated your heart and mine, mine, if you've bowed your knee in submission to the Father and I've bowed mine, then we have way more in common than whatever differences we may have. If you are united to Christ and I am united to Christ, then we are united together in in the family of God as brothers and sisters. And therefore, I think it follows that we can live in community with any brother or sister. Different levels of connection, sure. Different varying levels of trust, absolutely, but always with a unity of heart and soul that outweighs any other differences. I've heard uh, the pushback to this. That's idealistic. That's not real life, and yet I'm still not persuaded. For my part, I'm Not going to appeal to my experience, I'm going to continue aspiring to the scriptures. Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, if we share in Jesus, I don't care how many years are between us, we can be of one heart and soul. If we share in the Spirit, I don't care how divergent our interests are, we can be of one heart and soul. This is part of the reason why, when it comes to base groups, we generally just say, go to the one that you live closest to. Because here's the scouting report on our base groups. Whichever group you go to is made up of other believers who are seeking after Jesus. So go unite around that, not around shared life stage, not around some other shared affinity. Go be blessed and spurred on by gathering around Jesus with a group of people who may be different than you in other ways that matter way less. Now, more than this being some vague unity of being on the same team, we see that this unity in the church was a unity with real skin in the game. There was a radical selflessness. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Going on, there was not a needy person among them as the believers sold their own belongings to ensure that the needs of others were met. We covered some of this back in Acts chapter 2 in September, but I think it bears repeating this morning. This is not a complete abolishment of all private property. We'll see that when we get to chapter 5. Peter clearly states that Ananias would have been fined to hold on to some of their stuff. Second, while some will say this is merely describing the Jerusalem church during a special revival, I would submit to you that something of the sense of this is prescriptive to all churches everywhere. I take the repetition in Acts to be intentionally descriptive. Further, what is implicit in Acts 2 and Acts 4 is stated explicitly in 1 John 3:17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? And so if we're united together in Christ as family of one heart and soul, then if one of our brothers or sisters has a need, then we are in fact our brother's keeper. In the same measure the Lord has given to us, we must also be willing to tangibly help meet the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters. This means hearing a need and responding sometimes more with more than I'll pray for you. Sometimes it means opening up our wallets or our Venmo app. Two further comments on this though. I suspect I suspect that many of us, maybe most of us in here, stand ready to help another brother and sister in need. I also suspect that most of us in here may be very reticent to help, to receive help from others. In order for the church to have the opportunity to be radically selfless, a person in need must be willing to share that need. Brother, sister, if you are struggling, you need to make that known. You need to give your church family the privilege of sharing in your burden. As one author has said, if you can accept the grace of the cross, then accepting this kind of help is nothing. If that's you this morning, here's my encouragement. Reach out to a fellow member. Reach out to your base group. Reach out to an elder. Come see me after the service. Second comment, we live in a pretty affluent area. Your brothers and sisters may need something far more costly than your money. They may need your time. For many of us, it would be easier to open our checkbook than to open our calendar. Yet the call to radical selflessness here in Acts 4 is the call to be so united of one heart and soul with our brothers and sisters that we are ready to say, whatever you need, if I have it, it's yours. Time, talent, or treasures. Did you get some bad news today? Why don't you swing by on your way home? Are you struggling? I'm on my way to talk and pray with you. Here's a challenge for all base groups. If you have families with young kids in your group, ask them tonight if you can serve them sometime by watching their kids while mom and dad go out for a date. If you have single people in your group, ask them how can you best encourage them? Is it an invite over to dinner? Is it making time for coffee? What is it? Ask them how you can best encourage them. Church, let us seek by the Spirit to be radically selfless with all that he's given us. In the world's fallen system, you live with self-regard, looking out for number one. Christ's kingdom turns that on its head and says, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Last note of our first image, the image of the Spirit's work. Note that this was an evangelistic community. With great power, verse 33, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Note that deep community and evangelistic fervor are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes we want to pit evangelism and community against each other. Right, So that the one passionate for evangelism will sometimes downplay the need for community and growth in grace. Then, falling off the other side of the horse, and I would argue far more prevalent, the one passionate for discipleship will downplay going with the gospel and emphasize more study and more fellowship. Here's a thought. Let's not fall off either side of the horse. Let's sit on the horse. Let's love one another deeply while also looking to invite others to Jesus. Let's seek to pursue meaningful relationships with the unchurched, the de-churched, the I'm churched but I don't want to be churched, but let's do that together while maintaining deep connections with the church, with the family of God. Let's pursue mission together. Community and mission are not two enemies playing tug of war against each other. They are two friends pulling together on the same side. And I maintain, as I have before, that if you lose the mission, then you will lose the community. That's the picture of the Spirit's work. Remarkable unity, radical selflessness, evangelistic fervor. Now we turn to look at our second image, Satan's work. As we Look to this image. Let's look at the action committed in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, if you're like me, this story makes you a bit uncomfortable. Like, If you ask someone their favorite Bible story, I don't think you're likely to hear, I like the one about Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) I was at a pastor's conference this week, right? And a couple different times I was asked, uh, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And even pastors respond, oh, wow, have fun with that. (laughs) Okay, we read this story and something just doesn't sit well with us about this. Like, come on, what's the big deal? What do they really do? And worse, we even think that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair when we've been formed in a culture of nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes, when we look around and grade ourselves on the curve with other people. But we need to be discipled by the Bible and not by the culture. Were we reading this on our own? We want to turn the page and go on to something more uplifting. But, church, hear me, hear me. I think that impulse, I think that impulse is exactly the proof that we ought to linger here until we can tremble, tremble, tremble at His holiness. Death seems an unfair sentence when we downplay with euphemisms like mistake. But the Bible would shoot it a little bit more straight than that. This is sin, and sin is a direct affront to the eternal God of the universe. Sinning against the God of the universe ought to cause us to tremble in reverent fear and cast ourselves desperately before him in confession lest we receive the good, right, just judgment of death. Said differently, we ought to live with a proper fear of the Lord. As I've read through this section over and over in preparation, the latter half of Psalm 36.1 now resounds in my mind at every turn of the story. There is no Fear of God before his eyes. This is the antidote to sin that is missing from the story, and this is the effect that God is going to stir by this event. So play that back in your mind as we glean some lessons from this second section. There is no fear of God before his eyes. First, let's take note of the sinners Ananias and Sapphira. Our text makes clear that they have conspired together in this. Verse 1 says, Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge. Then further down when she is confronted, verse 9, it says that they have agreed together in this. So we see Sapphira is not simply caught up at the wrong place or at the wrong time, but she's a willful co-conspirator in this sin. But interestingly, Ananias seems to be more responsible. In Peter's confrontation of Ananias, all of the second-person pronouns are singular. Ananias is confronted singularly. Why is it that you have contrived this deed? You have not lied to man, but to God. Yet in Peter's confrontation of Sapphira all of the pronouns are plural and this is missed in our English translations. Think y'all. Tell me, tell me when he confronts Sapphira he says, "Tell me whether y'all sold the land for so much. How is it that y'all have agreed together?" I think this points to Ananias bearing the greater response greater weight of responsibility whether because he devise the plan, or more likely, in my view, because he should have led his family into righteousness and not into ruin. Still, something else is clear by Peter's questioning of Sapphira. She ought not to have gone along with her husband in this plan. For all the things that male leadership in the home does mean, it is clear that Sapphira ought not to have gone along with this plan. When he is in sin, she should not submit. She should not have agreed together with this. She should have pushed back and said, I can't go along with this clear sin. Indeed, contra to the example of Sapphira, husbands, how often do we find that our wife's pushback is the gracious provision from the Lord to guard us from great error. Foolproof? Certainly not, but often. Men, lead your family to righteousness and not to ruin. Lead with the fear of God before your eyes, knowing you will one day give an account. Next, Next, Let's note here what Ananias and Sapphira's sin isn't and what it is. First, from Peter's confrontation of Ananias, let's note what it isn't. Their sin isn't holding back property. Their sin isn't that they kept some of their stuff. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Before you sold it, it was yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. After you sold it, it was still yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. In verse 3, and repeat it again in verse 4, the sin being confronted is lying lying about giving all of it when in reality they had kept some back. And, church, hear this distinction this morning because it's important if we're going to fight sin in our life. Lying is the fruit of sin. Lying is the visible action, the external outworking of internal sickness. The sin, in fact, goes much deeper. As Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on inside is what comes outside. So it does no lasting good to deal with sin only at the fruit, right? Like what happens when you tear out the weeds in your garden above the surface but you leave the roots intact they just come back in the same way if we're going to fight sin we have to go down to the root sin fruit sin always stems from root sin the root issue in Ananias and Sapphira is this they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God Jesus warns, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, in order for others to be, in order to be seen by them." Ananias and Sapphira go one step further; they faked their righteousness. They faked a level of generosity before men in an attempt to receive praises from men. How wicked is that? Living for the approval of man is repeatedly warned against in the scriptures. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were try, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the heart of it for them. Because they love the approval of man more than the approval of God, they are willing to jettison God's approval while they chase the approval of man. Were it the opposite, were it God's approval that was supreme in their hearts, then they would have told the truth about their gift. Church, please get two takeaways here. If you are going to fight sin in your life, you need to dig beneath the surface and down to the root. And then, once you identify the root, you need to confess the sin at its hideous root and make war against it at that level. Make it a habit of tracing sin in your life back to root idols of things like control, of comfort, of selfishness, of pride, and so on. Second takeaway from this, take a specific warning against living for the approval of others. Against the fear of man. People-pleasing is a pernicious, pernicious evil. The people-pleaser is unmoored because they have cut the rope, anchoring them to God's anger, or to God's approval, and are instead dangerously living for the approval of people. If that's you this morning, remember the gospel. You are approved by God because of Christ's finished work on the cross and are thereby freed from needing the approval of others. You are freed then to live your life before the audience of one in reverent holiness, which we call the fear of the Lord. Moving on, take note next of who Ananias and Sapphira sinned against. Think about it for a second. Who do they sin against? While clearly they've lied to Peter and to the apostles, the text doesn't stop there. Verse three, it's a lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse four, you have not lied to men, but to God. Verse nine, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Ultimately, their sin, like all sin, is against a holy God. And this is the point that raises the stakes on what's going on here. Okay, were it possible Suppose they had only sinned against another man. What's the big deal? Yeah, Peter's important, but Peter is himself a sinner. He has no high horse to stand on in judgment. Sure, when we are sinned against, we esteem ourselves VIPs, appalled that someone would dare fail to give us the honor that we are due. Like, we're not going to talk to me like that. How could someone do such a thing to me? Sinning against another person certainly causes relational strife. It certainly causes consequences. It causes pain and hurt, and it certainly needs reconciliation. But sinning against a fellow man is no capital offense, except that all sin is ultimately always also against God Himself. He is due your honor, He is owed your complete worship. He is the Lord of hosts that is not to be trifled with. His glory he will not share with another and he will not be mocked. And that's exactly what the text says that they did. In the confrontation of Sapphira in verse 9, Peter says they have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. That is, they have lived with utter disregard for him, mocking him, living as if to say, he's not going to do anything about this. Look at verse 8. Sapphira is even given the chance to come clean, and yet she doubles down on her testing of the Lord, fancying that she will somehow beat the rap. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it's the one they have sinned against that justifies the death sentence they receive. Church, we must remember the holiness of our God and the seriousness of our sin. If it sounds tough this morning, this is the repeated testimony of the scriptures. Joshua 7, the sin of Achan keeping back some of the spoils that were supposed to be destroyed was such an offense that it got him and his whole family killed. 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, and God struck him down because of his error. Luke 13, do you remember what Jesus said about the Tower of Siloam that fell, killing 18 people? He says, You shouldn't ask why they were killed. You should ask why that didn't happen to everyone else. And then he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Most of all, church, when you need to be reminded of the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin, remember the cross. Your sin and mine was so serious that nothing less than the blood of God's own son could atone for it. A proper reverence before God looks on the cross with gratefulness, but also walks away undone at the fact that it was our sin that nailed him there. That same proper reverence, the fear of the Lord, when we look in our lives and we, when we see the sin that remains, even now must cause us to tremble humbly before him, and it must cause us to spare nothing to put to death, the deeds of the flesh by his spirit. If you're here today and not a believer, first of all, we're glad that you're here. But second, out of love, you need to hear this warning from our text today. If you persist in your sin, unwilling to confess it and repent, unwilling to cast yourself desperately at the foot of of the cross, you too can count on swift judgment. You shouldn't, you shouldn't appease yourself this morning by thinking that it hasn't happened yet. All the time that he waits, all the time that he forbears is kindness given to you that you might repent. Hear me friend hear me in love you can bow your knee now in faith and repentance or you will bow your knee later in judgment and friends all of us all of us hear this sober warning from our text today i take ananias and sapphira not as believers but as imposters among the community of true believers. I do that one, because of the way they're contrasted with the true believers. Two, because Ananias' heart is said to be filled with filled by Satan and not by the Spirit. Three, because of how verse thirteen, which we'll read in a moment, declares that outsiders were afraid to join in the church. Four, because the spirit, because of the way that the spirit executes discipline to put Ananias and Sapphira out of the church. Now hear the warning. Hanging around the body of Christ without trusting in Christ will do you no ultimate good. Tagging along in our community without a heart made new in faith by the Spirit will do you no ultimate good. Jesus tells us, This is sobering. Jesus tells us that many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? And he will reply, depart from me, I never knew you. Let that not be you, friend. Let us come before him in reverent fear, trembling and searching our hearts to be sure that that's not us. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's you. If that's you this morning, if the Spirit of God is convicting you that you've lived all of your life up until now as a mere imposter, then cast All your faith on the cross of Christ this morning and receive his grace. Acts chapter 5, 11 to 14. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The result of this incident with Ananias and Sapphira was that great Fear spread among the whole church and upon all who heard it. The holiness of his congregation was guarded as those who were outsiders didn't dare play around in the temple that is the church, knowing that God's holiness resided among the people of God. and they're walking in reverent fear of God. Their holiness had an evangelistic effect. Walking in holy fear of him was used of God to call multitudes of men and women to himself. Church, what would our lives look like? What would our lives look like if we had a greater fear of the Lord? Would you have a more fervent pursuit of holiness like sometimes right we've, we fight sin in our lives just like I uh, just like I tackle house projects I just keep looking at them and I'm like yeah next week next week I don't have time for that right now I'll just we'll deal with it later I just walk past it all the time look at my front door it's like falling apart well, I just walk past it all the time If we had a fear of the Lord, I think we would think the time to fight sin in our life is now, today. We'd stop putting it off and deal with it now. Maybe it would mean a more fervent seeking of him in his word. More fervent seeking of him in prayer it would certainly mean a deeper gratitude for the gospel. Let us walk away this morning marveling at his holiness and stirred up to walk more and more with the fear of the Lord before our eyes. In closing, The fear of the Lord forbids us to yield. It sharpens our sword and strengthens our shield. Then cry we to heaven with one loud accord that to us be given the fear of the Lord. Church, may it be so. May he use his word this morning to stir up in us even greater holy reverence for him. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word God we thank you also for your grace recognizing that none none of us deserve another day on this planet God but because of your grace you forbear and because of the grace of the cross you invite us back into relationship with you that you have made a way for unholy sinners to be in relationship with you. That is an amazing grace. God, we pray that we wouldn't, as we walk out in the Christian life, that we pray that we would not uh, take uh, lightly that grace, that it would not become so familiar to us that we cease to be amazed by it, that we wouldn't be so... uh, familiar with it, that we um, look at it as something cheap. God, we know it's free to us, but it did not come cheap. God, use your word here to warn us of sin. God, use your word to stir up in us a greater fear and reverence for you as being above us, beyond us, and us being created subjects of you, a good and perfect king. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.